Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I'm Nathan Owens. Sitting across the desk from me as usual is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who are listening. Thank you so much for allowing us to be coming to your home this evening. Now, we have a new topic for you tonight, but before we get to that topic, we are going to answer a question that came in from a listener, or I should say Pastor Murphy is going to answer a question that came in from a listener last week. And the question was, can you please explain Song of Solomon 4.16? What did Solomon mean when he said, eat your food? And Song of Solomon 4.16 says, Awake, O north wind, and come thou south. Blow upon my garden, and take the spices thereof, may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden, and eat of his pleasant fruits. Uh, I, I thought that, uh, to mention that, you know, this is one of the verses of Scripture that gives you an idea that you just can't take a passage uh, without looking at the full context of the chapter, and then also look at the broader context of the book itself. Uh, it's very difficult to interpret a passage like this by just taking a single verse, taking it out of Scripture, and then try to give you interpretation. So the best way to deal with this um, particular verse would be to consider what is the chapter about. But then, if we know what the chapter is about, it would also be helpful to know what the whole book of Song of Solomon is all about. So I, I just thought I would spend some time um, showing the importance of looking at the context and also looking at the theme of a book in order to come to the understanding of what the passage is saying. Basically, the, the Song of Solomon, uh, there have always been three basic interpretations concerning the book of Song of Solomon. There are those who see it as an allegory. Uh, they see Solomon in this book as God, a representing God, and the Shulamite woman representing Israel. So they see that Solomon is writing about the relation between God and Israel, and he's using poetic language and using the relation between a husband and his spouse to uh, depict that kind of uh, relationship. The second method of that interpretation that is a literal interpretation, which takes that what Solomon writes here is uh, a song or celebrating 
conjugal love between a man and his woman uh, and his wife. Uh, he has met this Shulamite woman. He's fallen in love with her. He marries her. And then chapter 4 is about the romantic part of his relationship. Now that the marriage is going to be consummated in chapter number 4. And then the third uh, interpretation, Dom, is that it's a typical interpretation. And what that means is that while this has literally happened in Solomon's life, it's a reflection of the relationship between Christ and the church. Uh, Those are the three basic interpretations, and I suspect that there is some relevance to uh, the typical part of it, because every part of the Bible is supposed to reflect something about Christ. He says the scriptures are about him. But uh, basically, uh, this chapter, uh, this book of Solomon is about the the theme has to do with the beauty of romantic love within a conjugal relationship. It is celebrating uh, marital ecstasy and marital love. That's what the whole book of Solomon is about. Uh, we don't have time to go through all the chapters, but in chapter 3, um, you'll find that the marriage is cons- consummated in chapter 3. The ceremony is gone. Um, they're now going into the nuptial occasion. And then in chapter 4, basically... Uh, what is about is uh, how their relationship, now that they're married, uh, how that is consummated in the actual act of intimacy. Uh, that is what this whole uh, chapter is all about, is celebrating intimacy between a man and his wife and showing you the this, this sacrosanct of, of marital love and that uh, the Bible does speak to this issue so there's nothing shameful about romance there's nothing shameful intimacy within marriage and um, it is something that God has created and God intends that a marital couple should enjoy this is what this uh, chapter is all about and uh, so that's just an essence of it it is celebrating conjugal love between a man and his wife for the first encounter that they have and the last verse of the chapter that it was requested and uh, that we give an interpretation uh, we will see that this is actually the wife um, calling him uh, to consummate the, rela- the relationship with the sexual act that's, that's what the, the final verse is all about but to, to get you to understand uh, the teaching I think it is only right and proper to go through the chapter with you to see why we've come to that conclusion because there's a lot of picturesque language, poetic language, a lot of imagery that is used. It's not familiar to our modern ears, but understanding the Old Testament culture, understanding the Old Testament times, and Jewish thinking, uh, we can walk you through this chapter to give you an idea of exactly what Solomon is is, is saying about this uh, entire marital relationship. So love is a beautiful thing, and it's 2022. So why... As a preacher, as a pastor, are you limiting it to only within marriage? Well, because God has made it very, very clear, and I hope tonight we'll show you that, that the only um, approved condition of sexual intimacy is within the context of marriage. God abominates any other form of sexual activity that is outside of marriage. And uh, so that is why Solomon can celebrate and that's why the Bible would give you a passage like this to celebrate marital love as opposed to just uh, the, the raw act of sex between two people. It's within the context of marriage that God endorses the sexual act. So that's why we need to get back sometimes to the scriptures because even within the church, there are people who are very liberal 
in the expression, sexual expression, and we need to understand that the the Bible requires of believers, as Paul tells us in Thessalonians, not let, don't even let fornication be mentioned once among you. So it's very, very strict when it comes to the intimacy uh, and the actual act of sex, and it reserves it uh, to the encounter of marriage. Can you give us a brief outline of this chapter? Yeah, if you go through the chapter, Nathan, you'll see that from verse 1 to 5, he praises the appearance of his spouse. He speaks about her beauty. What he's doing basically in verse 1 to 5 is buttering her up. Uh, they're having, they've gone through the marital ceremony, they're now together basically, and he's expressing how profoundly beautiful she is, and uh, to giving her the sense of security, uh, because if you read uh, previous verses, uh, she had doubts about her parents when she first met Solomon. Now that they're married and they're about to consummate their marriage, Solomon is really praising her and letting her know, listen, you, you, you don't need to be insecure about how you look and your parents. Uh, so he, he talks about her exquisite beauty in verses 1 to 5. Then in verse 6, he talks about his passion uh, for to consummate the relationship. Uh, so his passion is expressed in verse 6. Then in verse 7 and 8, again, he praises her perfection. He uses the word, there's not a, even a spot in you, basically. So he's, he's going to find that he alternates between praise and expressing his passion. Praise and passion, praise and passion. You'll find that. And then in verse... Um, 9 to 11, he elaborates on the depths of his passion uh, for his spouse. Uh, he so wants to consummate the marriage, and you'll find the kind of language that he uses, uh, quite frankly, uh, tells you how desirable she is and um, how he really wants to enjoy uh, the conjugal relation. And then in verses 12 to 15, we have the actual consummation of the act of uh, sex between the husband and the wife. Those are the five main divisions of um, of this uh, chapter. Nathan, what I'd like to do is to, to um, walk through now from verses 1 to 5 and look at the kind of language that, that uh, he uses. You'll notice that in these verses 1 to 5 uh, that he really uh, uses and speaks about seven of her outstanding features. He talks about her eyes, her ears, her, her, her teeth, her lips, her temples, her neck, and her breasts. And uh, he uses comparisons, uh, natural comparisons in nature that are pleasant and pleasing to look upon. And he's comparing those, comparing her to those pleasant things that in nature you see that are so attractive and so appealing. Now, when you read the language in this chapter, it doesn't sound very romantic in the 21st century, but you must remember you're living in an agrarian society where agriculture is the main, uh, the main economy. And the imagery that he's using here, uh, imagery that would be common to his own culture and his own um, um, country. So that's why he uses this kind of language. But uh, basically the wedding is over, the evening is is gone, uh, the night is about to begin, and there's a silence of anticipation. Romance is about to begin. The groom is now buttering her up and preparing her for that marital moment. And he praises her beauty and appearance and he's a master charmer. You can see the language that he uses in this particular chapter. Uh, and again, I mentioned the reason why he does that is because in in verses uh, chapter one, verse five to six, she is so insecure about her looks and if she's attractive or not. 
So when it comes to this 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 first night together, um, he has to reassure her and let her know she's extremely beautiful, and her appearance uh, is something that touches him deeply. And um, basically, he can't wait for the moment. That's what it's all about in this chapter. Um, if you look at uh, if you if you can read for me uh, verse one. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes within thy locks. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appeareth from Mount Gilead. Yeah, again, we 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 would hardly ever use that that that, that kind of language. But these are these are comparisons in nature that are designed to complement her. For example, he compares her eyes to dove eyes, and um, uh, two things here: the dove is the only clean animal in the Old Testament that could be used for sacrifice. So the idea has the idea of purity inherent in the idea of dove. And then according to uh, John Strapp, the the dove eye is fearful, clear, and chaste. So he's seeing the beauty. Uh, we, we wouldn't too much observe this, but uh, he clearly is a person who's uh, very cognizant of nature. And if you read the book of uh, Ecclesiastes, one of the things that it tells us that Solomon was a man who studied every area, botany, zoology. He brought all kind of exotic animals from overseas and bring them to the kingdom of Israel. So he is a naturalist as well, and he would have been observing, and he compares her eyes to the dove eyes. Uh, when it says among her locks, the word lock there should be veil. Uh, in the Hebrew language. It's not locks, it's veil. Uh, so when you marry, you have on your veil, and you see in her eyes uh, just protruding out of the, the veil, basically. That's what he discuss, dis- discovers her, uh, dis- dis- describes her. And then notice here, uh, he says in verse number C, uh, about verse 3, he said, here is like what? A flock of goats. Yeah, and again, if you know anything about the, the goats in <laughs> that part of the world, they have... Uh, long, uh, bouncy black hair that that flows. So he's imagining a, a flock of uh, goats coming down a hill, and while they're coming down, the hair is bouncing basically. And if you could visualize the beauty of seeing that coming down from nature, he's comparing her and he's saying that she has long, flowing black hair that is bouncing as it moves basically. Uh, so the, 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 he's using that that imagery, and then he comes to, in verse two to her teeth. Thy teeth are like a flock of sheep that are evenly shorn, which came up from the washing, whereof every one bear twins, and none is barren among them. So what she's saying, basically, if you, if you can imagine the move away from the goat now, you're looking at the white sheep that produces wool, but they're all shaved off, so the wool is not there, and they're coming off uh, like a hill, basically, and he's saying that uh, your teeth are white and clean, and they're even. Notice he says, everyone bears twins, and then he says, they're complete, none are barren, none are missing. In other words, you're not missing any teeth, basically. <laughs> so he's actually um, using every, uh, you know, he has the skill of poetry, no question about that, and uh, he's a very learned person. In addition, very skilled and very poetic. And then in verse number three, he talks about her lips. Thy lips are like a thread of scarlet, and thy speech is comely. Thy temples are like a piece of pomegranate within thy locks. So the lips are like a strand of scarlet. It means that they're thin, well outlined and of a deep red color, basically. Uh, that's what the scarlet is. So he's he's using that to compare her lips. And then he says her temple is like what? 
a piece of pomegranate pomegranate so <laughs> what he's saying there your, your cheeks have color and flush with passion and beauty if you take a pomegranate and you slice it's kind of pink on the inside so he is saying basically that she's almost blushing uh, at this point in time and then in verse number four he talks about her neck thy neck is like the tower of david builded for an armory whereon there hang a thousand bucklers all shields of mighty men yeah well later on he will compare that you said one of your one of your bracelets or one of your chains around your neck has appealed to me but the the imagery here is that david's tower is something noble and strong and he is saying to her you're a woman of very strong character and very noble character uh you, you stand up you remember in the in the uh, ancient times the neck was part that was thought that to reflect a person's character Okay. When the neck was bent over, it indicated the person was being humiliated. When a person stood up very stiff, of course, that was stubbornness. But in this case, by the stiff neck, you remember in the, in yeah. the scriptures? But uh, a noble person always um, bore themselves with a very upright uh, neck. And so he's commending her noble nobility and her, and her strength. Then in verse number five. Thy two breasts are like two young rows that are twins, which feed among the lilies. So if you can imagine uh, white lilies and then you've got these two young does or two deers or fawns and uh, just like two fawns would stand out among two white lilies, he's saying basically your breasts stand out basically and just like it's a pleasant sight to see very young uh, fawns or very young deers. As a matter of fact, uh, most people uh, like to either touch or gently or embrace these um young deers uh, they're so attractive and so appealing that like you want to pet them basically so he is grooming her and he's using that kind of poetic language to, to say to her woman you are sight to behold basically and <coughs> he's using the language of poetry <coughs> in a very discreet way uh, to speak of her beauty and her excellence <coughs> so the number one to verse number five you're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 <coughs> FM, and online at radiolighthouse.org. And for this program, a live interactive call-in program, we are also on Facebook. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page and click on the Facebook Live video feed. Time across Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 749. If you have a question, you can call and ask it live on the air by calling 1-268-462-7420, or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. If we move into verse number six, uh, this is second major section. Uh, he's talking about his, his passion, his desire uh, to consummate the relationship. Uh, could you read that for me, please? Until the day break and the shadows flee away, I will get me to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. Basically, what he's saying here is, look, I want to love you until the light of dawn breaks. Remember, he just got married. It's the first night. And that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about until the, uh, the, the light flies away. And then he said, I will go up to frankincense. And um, read that again, please. I will get to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. Yeah. So he's talking about uh, you're going to the mountain, you're going into seclusion, basically, surrounded by the smell of um, perfume, etc., etc. So the idea is... Um, 
getting away, you get into a mountain, the idea is isolation and enjoying the presence. And of course, uh, he must mention the fact that um, the perfume was there and the smell was there that was so attractive. You'll find that um, when Solomon talks about the, the, uh, the strange woman, he talks about her bed perfume. The whole idea is, um, it seems to me that when you read the Old Testament, that clearly that part of romance was the idea of using perfume to, to create the ambience, the atmosphere that lead to that kind of intimacy. So he's basically saying, you know, basically, I want to, I, 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 it's nighttime, let's make love until the, the, the break of day, and let's do this in seclusion where we enjoy our, ourselves and where we have these sweet smells and these sweet, pleasant scents of perfume. Then we come to verse number 7 and 8. <clears throat> now, verse 7 and 8. Now, now you're going to praise her perfection again. He's, he's, you're going to find that he praises her, and then he expresses his passion. It alternates between the two. So he goes back now to praising her of her perfection and her beauty. Verse 7 and 8. Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse. With me from Lebanon, Look from the top of Amana, from the top of Shinir and Hermon, from the lion's den, from the mountains of the leopards. Yeah. First thing is, that notice he said there's no spot in her. So he's talking about her total perfection. Okay. Um, your fear, and I see no spot. It's interesting, Nathan, this word, no spot, is found 18 times in the Bible. And every time it is used, it speaks of the sacrificial animal that had no blemish. So he's really, really buttering up here, said, you know, you're perfect, basically. Uh, and then he says, come with me from Lebanon. She's clearly coming from the north. If you read the the, uh, the previous per chapters, she's coming from Lebanon in that area. And he's, 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 like he's appealing to her to, to, to trace her ways from the north, come down to south to me, basically. That's what he says. So he kind of gives her the stages of her journey, Lebanon, um, the summit of Amana, and then Senir, and then he her Hermon in Israel. So he's kind of tracing her steps, uh, appealing to her to, to come down. He's, that's the kind of passion that he has for her. And then he says, come from the lion's den, and uh, that last part in verse number eight. From the mountains, uh, let's see, verse from eight. the lion's den, from the mountains of the leopards. Right. He's don't ask her to leave her fears, right? Uh, and of course, the fears of leaving her home to be his wife, uh, to be married for her. Tell her to leave your anxieties, leave your fears. Let's start this new life together. And he's calling her into his arms of safety and security as opposed to her dread security, uh, insecurity she has and the fears that she has as a person who is Leban uh, coming from Lebanon. He is also, he's from Israel. So he's um, bidding her as she's calling her back, basically. But she has these fears, and uh, he's calling her from her fears into his security in verse number 7 and 8. And then if we move to verse 9 and 11. Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes, with one chain of thy neck. Verse 10. How fair is thy love, my sister, my spouse. How much better is thy love than wine and the smell of thine ointments than all spices. And verse 11. Thy lips, O my spouse, Drop as the honeycomb, honey and milk are under thy tongue, and the smell of thy garments is like the smell of Lebanon. Every woman would like to hear words like that, no question about that. But uh, notice that he's saying, now oh, he's elaborating on the depths of his passion for her. He said, you ravish me, 
basically it means you've seized me, you've captured me, you've stolen my heart. Uh, he's talking about the effect of seeing her, what it has upon him. When one looks, uh, with one look, he's saying, Would you, are you, uh, you've captivated me deeply. In other words, you've won me. You've, you, you, you've got my... It's like love at first sight, basically, he's saying in this particular passage. And then he says, your love is superior to wine. So now he's, 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 he's comparing her to things that are pleasant and that are normally enjoyable. And then he says, um, your everyday ointment, uh, oils, smell better than the most exotic perfumes. Again, he's buttering her up. He's speaking very favorably to her. And then in verse 11, he says, he said, they describe the sweetness of her kisses. And this is where we learn that the French kisses didn't start with the French. Notice what he says carefully in verse 11. Thy lips, O my spouse, drop as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under thy tongue. And the smell of thy garments is like the smell of Lebanon. So clearly, uh, he's talking the fact that honey is under the, the tongue, basically. Um, that is French kissing, if you didn't know that. Uh, so it didn't start with the French. It was in the Bible far long before the French came along. And then he talked about her garments. And where the word garment here, by the way, is Salma. And this is not the common word for garment. This is the outward garment that the uh, Jews would wear. And it served two purposes. Number one, it was an overcloak when you walked during the day. What, is, what you would cover with at night. So basically, this is like saying, uh, we would say today, uh, we, this would be concrete to her putting on her nighty, basically. Um, that he's now speaking to her in that regard. So the, the whole scene um, speaks about her beautiful sight, her smell, her taste, her words, and he poetically and tastefully really brings out the point that uh, he is so anxious to consummate this relationship. Uh, she has just completely ravished him and, and captured him. And it's almost he can't wait, basically, in, in that uh, section. And then we come to verse 12 and 15, which has to do with the consummation of the act of intimacy. And uh, could you read verse number 12 and following? A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Thy plants are an orchard of pomegranates. Let's start with the first verse, there, verse 13. Uh, could you read that again? Verse 12, sorry, read it again for me, please. The garden is enclosed. Is my sister. Right. The mm-hmm. fountain is... A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Yeah. He's talking about her virginity right here. She's a garden, but she's a garden that is enclosed, shut up, protected. Nobody has gone into her garden as yet. He's going to go into her garden. She's going to say, come. I'm your garden later in the last part of the verse. So what you have here is basically he's celebrating the fact that she is a virgin. Nobody has touched her. Nobody's been into her garden. Nobody has drank of her fountain or taken of her spring, uh, basically. So he's actually celebrating uh, the virginity of this uh, woman that he's now about to consummate the the uh, marriage with. And Nathan, I would like to, to say here that... Uh, I think that we need to remind people that uh, virginity is something to be celebrated, not something to be ashamed of. Mm. The whole thing has reversed today that we got this moral inversion that uh, girls are ashamed to say, well, I'm a virgin. And I think that this whole thing needs to be changed. We need to understand that just like he celebrates the fact that this, she's been secure, she's been protected, nobody has touched her, nobody's drunk of her fountain as yet. We need to kill our young girls and our young women today. That's what you need. Keep your garden for your husband. Don't let somebody get into your garden. Protect your garden. And, uh, you know, there's so many myths out there, Nathan, that need to be cleared up. 
uh, some people say, well, you know, the, the Old Testament doesn't say anything about uh, moral purity. Who says that? But this is a very clear passage that teaches that, but there are also other Old Testament passages that, that warns about people who um, engage in sexual acts before. Uh, another myth is that, uh, you know, if he wants, he wants me, therefore, you know, he wants to have sex with me because he loves me. No, that's not true. If he loves you, he waits for marriage to have sex with you. So it's a myth to believe that because he wants to have sex, it means that he loves me. That's not true. If he really loves you, he waits for marriage then to have sex. We've got to change the mentality and change the thinking. And uh, the book of Proverbs would help you in that regard, and uh, also the book of Solomon. <coughs> the other one is, um, I would like to say that <coughs> they did a survey and they asked men a question. If you could be certain that your wife or girlfriend would never know, would you have sex with any of her friends? 55% of the men said yes. Hmm. So the idea that, that I, I love you, I, I, I want to have sex because I love you, that's not how it is. Men don't see it that way. Sex is divorced from love. It's just uh, pleasure, basically. Another survey was done, and... Um, the question was asked uh, of men, have you ever had sex with a woman who you have actively disliked? 58% of the men said yes. So it's not something that is not necessarily a romantic relationship. It is just a sexual experience. This is why um, a man can have one woman here and have five women at the same time. Uh, so the idea that sex is love is a myth, right? The person who loves that individual would wait for marriage before they get involved sexually with that person. And I would say to any person listening to me this evening, any man that forces sex on you before marriage, he does not understand the biblical concept of true, genuine, authentic love. Understand that. We must not equate lust with love. They, I know the stalls start with L and they all have four letters, but it's completely different uh, and so on. So that is another myth that needs to be put to rest when it comes to this, this matter. Um, the other thing that needs to be said uh, along the same line, Nathan, is that there are people who say, you know, who say well, you know, my Christian is a boy, my, my boyfriend is a Christian, therefore we don't have to worry about the problem of getting involved. That's another myth that needs to be very cleared up. Um, you have to protect yourself. You have to understand. When I say protect, I don't mean carry a condom, okay? I mean you have to safeguard your virginity and safeguard your purity and your moral purity. And your thoughts. Uh, and, and your thoughts, because a lot of it, well, the thought always, it always a thought before it leads to the act. The thought leads to the act. Uh, but it's a myth to think that Christians are not going to have to be very careful because even Christians are tempted so you have to take precautions and not assume that because you and your boyfriend uh, is, a, is a Christian that you can go so far and you can stop. Uh, that's a complete myth. Uh, <clears throat> the other myth is that, you know, we're going to get married so it doesn't matter if we have sex. Who says so? God uh, says it shouldn't happen. And by the way, if you can't trust or your mommy or your daddy can't trust a young man who's uh, claimed to love you, and he is able to uh, break the trust that your parents have placed in him by pushing sex upon you. If he if he can't if, but what, what, if he does it before you're married, what do you think is going to happen after you're married? Mm. 
See? So if you can't trust him now, how are you going to trust him then? So I think that this verse in itself, the fact that he's celebrating um, her purity and her virginity, that she's been protected, the garden not touched, the ward has not been, been used and utilized, uh, uh, is something that we, we just need to be very clear, uh, clear about. Um, so we go from verse 12, now verse number 13. Oh, oh Nathan, I would like you to read some one or two verses here for me, please. Um, read Deuteronomy chapter 22, uh, verse 13 to 29. Deuteronomy 22, 13 to 29. If any man take a wife and go in unto her and hate her and give occasion of speech against her and bring up an evil name upon her and say, I took this woman this woman, and when I came to her, I found her not a maid. Then shall the father of the damsel and her mother take and bring forth the tokens of the damsel's virginity unto the elders of the city in the gate. And the damsel's father shall say unto the elders, I gave my daughter unto this man to wife, and he hateth her. And lo, he hath given occasion of speech against her, saying, I found not thy daughter a maid, and yet these are the tokens of my daughter's virginity, and they shall spread the cloth before the elders of the city. And the elders of that city shall take that man and chastise him, and they shall immerse him in a hundred shekels of... Um, I guess that's immerse immerse him in a hundred shekels of silver and give them unto the father of the damsel because he hath brought up an evil name upon the virgin of Israel and she shall be his wife and he may not put her away all his days. Yeah. Verse 20. You want me to continue? Uh, yeah, you got the verse 20. Uh, just start in verse 20. Go, go ahead. But if the thing be... But if this thing be true, and the tokens of virginity be not found for the damsel, then they shall bring out the damsel to the door of her father's house, and the men of the city shall stone her with stones, and she shall die. Because she hath wrought folly in Israel to play the whore in her father's house, so shalt thou put evil away from among you. If a man be found lying with a woman married to an husband, then they both shall die. Both the man that lay with the woman and the woman shall thou put away evil from Israel. If a damsel that is a virgin be betrothed unto a husband, and a man find her in the city and lie with her, then he shall bring them both out of the gate of the city, and ye shall stone them with stones that they die. And the damsel, because she cried not, being in the city, and the man, because he hath humbled his neighbor's wife, so thou shalt put away evil from among you. Verse 25, But if a man find a betrothed damsel in the field, and the woman, and the man force her and lie with her, then the man only that lay with her shall die. You notice two things there. First of all, when a person married a person and thought they were virgin, they weren't a virgin. Um, Nathan, I don't even notice, but in the Old Testament, uh, the first night of encounter between a man and a wife, there was a sheet. And that was if that was kept to prove that she was a virgin, right? Because a hymen was was uh, damp. Well, you know, and you knew that. This is Old Testament language, raw Old Testament language, mm -hmm. but that was to safeguard the integrity of the marriage. 
that a person could not fool a person saying, I'm a virgin, and then they proved that it was not when they were playing the field. That tells you how God looked upon this thing. God said, listen, she should be stoned. No, I want to say this. God hasn't changed his mind on these matters. If you think we've changed his mind, it's just that the way he deals with it doesn't deal with the sin. Remember in Romans chapter 1, I haven't listed 19 sins. Paul said people who do these things are worthy of death. There was a capital sentence on these matters. So God hasn't changed his mind. It's just on the grace he's not dealing with them. The other one was a person who is um, uh, an unfaithful wife. Adultery. So both fornication and adultery basically is abominated in the Old Testament. It was worthy of some uh, capital offense so that the person would suffer death. Of course, we don't enact that today because you're not under the Old Testament law. But the thing we need to understand is God's attitude towards this immorality hasn't changed. We have softened this whole thing and we made immorality as though it, it doesn't matter. Uh, but God's attitude towards it is basically fundamentally the same. A woman sh should remain pure and be given to her husband in purity and vice versa with a man. But we, has, uh, we have actually taken the, 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 one of the greatest gifts that God ever given to us and now completely abused it and uh, to the extent where we don't know what morality is any longer. So that when a person comes to the altar, it's been my... Um, my discovery in, 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 in marrying people and counseling people that by the time the average man comes to the altar, he's been through five or six women already. By the time an average woman comes to the altar in the Caribbean, she's been through one to three to four men already. She's, she's used material, quite frankly, second hand, third hand, fourth hand. That's how low morality has reached. And it's not just in the Caribbean, by the way, it's now become a global thing. It's as though uh, intimacy and sex. It's like, a, it's like a game. It, it, there's no seriousness about it whatsoever. But God looks upon this thing and he, his attitude towards this hasn't changed. He still sees it as very sinful and evil and wicked and abomination. And he, uh, quite frankly, would deal with it ultimately. And that's why in the New Testament, we're told, let it not be mentioned even once among you who are believers. That's how serious this problem is. And I hope the church gets back to dealing and speaking on these matters and letting the young people know from an early age, keep themselves pure for their partner before, uh, so that when they're going to marriage, they're going to marriage uh, in purity and virginity. That needs to be re-established and need to be reasserted again and again and again. We must not let Hollywood win this battle. The church must do something to change the whole attitude towards this matter. But it's 2022, almost 2023. That's outdated, Pastor. The Bible is never outdated. God is never outdated. Amen. Okay, Morality is never outdated. Uh, what happens is that people change, cultures change, but the Word of God never changes. And the church must maintain the biblical standard. You know, if you have high expectations of people, you can raise them up, Nathan. If you have low expectations, you can never raise them up. And the problem we have today, we said that they're going to do it anyway. It's like a mom saying, well, you know, you're going on a date. Well, just put the condom in your bag just in case. What does that say to the girl? I mean, you, you, you're not... You're, it doesn't show trust. It doesn't show you have confidence in her. Uh, same thing, you know, they're going to they're going to use drugs anywhere, so let them use drugs in the house. It's better to let them smoke my one at home than to smoke on the outside. I mean, what kind of uh, standard is this? What kind of morality? We've got to get back to biblical morality and understand that God wants his people to be pure morally. And uh, we are actually uh, doing a great disservice to our partner when we go into a uh, marriage, and we have already been to several encounters. Um, 
that's why I, I would say this. I think that's the reason why a lot of marriages break up. Uh, you've not had a one. The person has tasted so much outside. Now they come into a marriage, they can't stay within that one marriage. It's like, you know, they don't want chicken every day. They want beef, turkey, they want steak, they want something else. But that has been conditioned in the mind prior to marriage. Mm. And now they go into the marriage and they get uh, find themselves still searching, uh, still window shopping. And um, I am v- I'm asking uh, believers who are listening, especially young people, God wants you to be pure. Stay pure, stay clean, and uh, remember you represent the Lord, and He's the one that tells you how to live your life, especially morally, what He expects of us as believers. Let us not besmirch His name by getting involved in these kind of things so that our, our the church becomes a reproach. And um, our, the testimony <coughs> of the Lord is, is tarnished because of these kinds of acts of immorality. You're listening to the Radio Lighthouse, <coughs> broadcasting from the island of Antigua. If you have a question, it doesn't have to pertain to what we're discussing here from Song of Solomon. It could pertain to life, could pertain to the Bible, what the Bible says, what it doesn't say, why certain things are in life, the frustrations, the anxieties of life, and what the Bible says about how to handle them. Again, answering your questions from a biblical worldview. Maybe it's a question that you know the answer to, but you hear it discussed many times, and you've heard other believers or unbelievers discussing it, concerned about it, debating it, and you would like to suggest it as a topic. Go ahead and send us a WhatsApp or text message, 268-782-1454. Or you can call and ask your question on the air by calling 268-462-7420. You can also join us on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page and right there on the click on the Facebook Live video feed and then you can comment on your device and your comments will get passed along to Pastor Murphy in a timely manner. If your question comes in... Uh, We will get to it in the order in which it comes in. No matter how you're joining us tonight, we are thankful that you have taken time out of your busy schedule on this Tuesday evening in order to join us. If you're listening on Saturday to the rebroadcast, we are glad that you are listening. And maybe you're saying, you know what, I work on Tuesday and there is no way that I can listen to the live broadcast. But I have a question. Listen, please go ahead and still send it in. No one will be here in the studio to answer your call, but you can WhatsApp or text your question and we will answer it the following Tuesday. WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. Yeah, I want to ask you to also turn not just to the Old Testament, uh, uh, see what the Old Te- the New Testament teaches on this subject as well. Look at uh, Ephesians 5.3. Ephesians 5.3 says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Very clear there. And the word fornication, there's the word pornea, is the Greek word for that carries a whole spectrum of sexual sins. So it includes... Adultery, it includes fornication, it includes lesbianism, it includes homosexuality. It's a broad term that covers sexual sin. Let it not be mentioned once among you. Look at verse number five of the same chapter, Nathan. 
For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ of, and of God. Notice the word whoremonger there. That's a person who is uh, sexually active, is engaged in all kinds of sexual activity. And notice that sexually active it, outside of marriage. Yeah, outside of marriage. This has to do with, uh, I notice uh, it's very, very clear. They have no part in the kingdom. But notice the word there is that those are the practicing these things is in the linear tense. Not that a person can't can, uh, commit an act of sex outside of marriage and, and, and be damned. But the, the, the Bible warns that a person who habitually is engaged in sexual activity has no part in the kingdom of God. In other, there's something inherently wrong with a person who cannot control their sexual desires after they're saved. The, the Holy Spirit is a spirit of self-control. So when you find that a person who is um, um, sexually on sexual prowess afterwards and he can't I'm talking outside of marriage now I'm not talking within marriage uh, and the Bible says by the way if you can't control your sexual desires get married that's how the marriage but when you have a person saying they're Christian they're not married uh, and um, they are now actively engaged sex all over the place mark it down chances are that person does not have a genuine conversion experience there must be control in this matter the bible says those who practice these things will not inherit i don't know how people read the bible you know nathan mm-hmm. i honestly don't know how people read the bible i guess they, they they put their own interpretation their own spin to it but the bible says very clearly the person who's practiced these things has no part in the kingdom. What that means, that person is not genuine, authentic, a believer. That's what it means. Simple as that. It doesn't mean anything less, anything more than that. So if a person finds themselves in the position after they're saved, they're still carousing around, they should examine themselves to see if they're in the faith because they're warned that you're not going to inherit the kingdom. In other words, Christianity has to change you. There must be a transformation. You can't be the same person you were before you were Christian and st- and still claim to be a believer. Doesn't that cross the line into making it a works religion, though? No, it's not a work. It's a, it's, well, let me put it this way. You're saved by faith, but you're, you're saved by the type of faith that changes you. It's not just, uh, you know, faith is a, uh, as, a, as, a, as the Bible was used in the book of Romans, is faith that produces obedience to God, the obedience of faith. It's a distinct type of faith, Nathan. Everybody got faith. Not everybody has saving faith. And that needs to, that distinction needs to be made. But a faith that doesn't result in your changed life is not genuine faith. It's simply uh, pseudo-faith. It's not authentic faith. And that's why the Bible has uses very strong language about this kind of thing. Now, let's be very, very clear. It is possible for a believer to be saved and live in sin. There's no doubt about it. Read Corinthians chapter 6, five of the young man with his stepmother, right? So this possible. Remember, there's a criminal pagan background, mm-hmm. right? We have been enlightened for, I mean, in the Caribbean. I just saw when I was going to, coming up here that the Moravian Church is celebrating 200 years yeah. of history. I said, but we Baptists just got here yesterday, <laughs> you know? But to think about that, you've had Christianity in this country for so long, right? And the Moravians are... Uh, I mean, Count Zendendorf, yeah. he is the one that started the Moravian movement. It's a very missionary movement. It was, it's a, it was a good church. I don't know what the church is like today, but substantially, I would believe they still preach the gospel. But the reality is, Antiguans have had the gospel for years, right? And uh, so it's not like we're coming out of paganism or Barbadian coming out of paganism. We've had the gospel for years. We've had Christianity for years. Uh, I'm just saying that uh, one needs to seriously examine themselves 
if there is no change or transformation in his life after conversion. Uh, if there's no change, chances are it's not a real conversion. But I think that needs to be underscored because we have a very loose opinion of what Christianity is today. It's as though we can be Christians and it doesn't matter how we live and we don't have to be changed to be Christians. Um, that doesn't happen in, 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 in the scriptures. So, oh, the other one is, uh, Nathan, look at First uh, Thessalonians 4.3. First Thessalonians 4, 3 Thessalonians yeah. 4.3 For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. Okay, I mean, this is, this is God's will for the believer's life. I can't understand how people can live so recklessly mm. without being bothered or I mean I would be and if I was in a situation like that I would wonder am I saved could I really be saved and knowing God's will and I have no desire to do God's will something is wrong there right uh, so it is very very clear it's God's will to remain pure I'm, again I'm not saying a believer can't fall I'm not saying that but I'm talking about a lifestyle that um, that is marked by this 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 kind of a, a way of living. There's something wrong if that's the person's lifestyle. And uh, and then one other verse, First um, Corinthians chapter six. What verse? Thirteen and eighteen. Meats for the belly, and the belly for meats. But God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Uh, all the way to verse No, 19. no, read 18. Verse 18. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Yeah, it's very, very clear that the body was not designed by God for the purpose of, of, of fornication. It was designed uh, for the Lord, to be used for the Lord, for His glory. And uh, Paul makes it very clear that fornication is one of those sins that it affects the body like no other sin. And that's because when you go through the sexual act, you start hormones in your body that now crave it creates that craving so in, in in a real sense once you've tasted this thing quite frankly the it's developed where you, you you keep on desiring that's why it warns you know other sins are not like this nathan but this is a particular sin that is very 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 strong so you warn very carefully that it affects the body in a way that other sins don't and i think anybody who's been married anybody who's been through this will know what we're talking about and that's why the bible warns so clearly don't go that way it does something to you and your body that will create this craving and it can lead to, to something even worse. So I'm saying I, I read those verses because both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it is very, very strong against immorality, whether it be premarital immorality or uh, postmarital immorality, which has to do with adultery. Uh, the Bible abominates uh, those kind of things. We have a WhatsApp question <laughs> that's just come in. Was Solomon lusting when he was expressing his charm to his wife? Well, what is lust? Lust is desire. Uh, a desire towards your wife uh, is a legitimate desire. A desire towards somebody else's wife is lust. So the, the, you, you've got to remember the same word for lust and the same word for desire is the same word in the Bible. It depends on how it is used. So sometimes you find the word is used as desire, sometimes it's used as lust. But there's nothing wrong in a man desiring his... He's just married, uh, chapter 3. The, the wedding is over, 
the night is about to begin. He wants to love her until the the, the, the break of morning, quite frankly, uh, etc. Et There's nothing wrong in him now uh, speaking to his wife, uh, kind of romantic language to prepare her for that moment of consummation. Uh, those are all legitimate things. So there's nothing wrong in a man desiring his wife, um, you know. Um, and I, I'm surprised that anybody would think that uh, a man should not desire his wife. <laughs> Who else should he desire? <laughs> so it's something legitimate. That's how he's been programmed. Uh, that's why he gets married. And Paul said, by the way, if you're going to burn in, in desires and lust, get married. So he, Paul realizes that that burning of that desire, that lust is there. So the, the legitimate way to get that, that need met is to get married not go outside marriage. <laughs> Another question that's just come in. Pastor, can you please explain what is n truly indeed the true mark of the beast? Well, uh, look, um, in Revelations chapter 13, uh, I believe that you'll find the mark of the beast mentioned there. Uh, all we're told, quite frankly, that at some point in time, when the Antichrist arises, along with the false prophets, the Antichrist is a political leader. He's going to be a great economic genius, a man, a great orator. The Bible makes it very speaks to speak of this person that uh, he's going to mesmerize the world, that he has a solution to the world's problem. I think we're headed in that direction right now, quite frankly, where we've got problems and we want some leader to arise to help solve the world's problems. But again, he's going to use economic coercion to get the world to bow to his and kowtow to his his leadership. Uh, Revelation explains that the book of Daniel explains that as well and then uh, to get people comply with his new world order uh, he's going to use the coercion of the economics and that's why I believe there's going to be a new form of currency uh, paper currency and uh, money currency that we have paper and, and, and metal is, is actually going to disappear we know it's almost disappearing now because you've got different forms I think uh, Russia and England and um, Russia and China are now trying to come up with a, a, a currency to replace the US as the main means I don't know if you know that you could go on internet and google it um, <clears throat> but to get people comply uh, to his leadership, he enforces economic coercion. You know, the recent thing with uh, the COVID has shown you very clearly the power of economics to get people comply with um, governmental mandates. Uh, the way the government got people to take the vaccine was to threaten their jobs and their security. And there are many people who did not want to take this vaccine, but because their jobs and the security was threatened, they took the vaccine. That gave you an idea of how powerful economics is to get people to conform. And in the future, it would be that. What was it? the Bible said? You couldn't. You can't buy. You can't sell. There's no kind of commerce. You can't go to the supermarket unless you've got the mark of the beast. You can't buy unless you've got the mark of the beast. <clears throat> now, what that mark is, we're told that it's the the number of a man. If you know anything about um, um, the system of numerology, and there's something called Germania, where the Hebrew language and the Greek language as well, the letters, uh, the Latin language, uh, have each letter of the language represents a number. Uh, so when that person comes on the scene, it is generally believed, and I believe this, that you will be able to take his number, if his name is John, 
and put that number in the Hebrew language or the Greek language and find out what that number means in the Greek or Hebrew now and it will come up to 666. Okay? I think that is the, that's why it's called a mystery. But the mystery has been revealed to us as Christians that when it happens, we're not going to be surprised. Now, they've done this before with other people who have risen on the political scene and they've taken the same thing and come up with, for example, they were saying Hitler was at one time 666 and there are others as well because they understand what's going to happen. Whoever that person is, when you put his name, it's going to come up to 666 in terms of numerology. That is what I believe the number is going to be. Um, now, how is this going to work with the ch- computer chip or some kind of thing that's going to be put in the in, in into the system? I, and the Bible says it's been in the right hand and in the forehead. Uh, I do believe that at some point in time, whether it's going to be, I don't see it a stamp with six 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 in a person's forehead. I don't see a stamp on six 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 in a person's hand, but I can see a a, a a chip that is hidden in either the forehead or in the hand that carries all your that data, your financial data. Um, that you'll be able to either put your hand over the scanner or put your head to the scanner and you can do all your deductions and all your payments. I can see that happening, and uh, somehow the digits. Uh, the 666, I believe, is going to be involved in, in some some pattern. I'm speculating at this point in time. Uh, I'm just telling you what the Bible teaches on this matter. But there's a lot more we're going to look at as we look into what's happening in history uh, as the, 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 the uh, we move towards the end of the age. And I think it will become clearer and clearer how this is going to work. But there's no question that there's going to be a mark that's going to come from the person's name that will help the people to recognize this is indeed the Antichrist. This is the one uh, to come. And remember that people who don't receive the mark, and I believe those people that don't receive the mark, when the church is raptured, they'll still have the Bible. And of course, you're going to have to explain how so many people disappeared. Uh, and that will send people to the scriptures, the Thessalonians and and First uh, Corinthians chapter fifteen, and a lot of people are going to realize it has happened, as these Christians said. Now he comes on the scene, and they're able now to use the mystery of the Book of Revelation. That name to realize now we can't we can't accept this man's mark of the beast. How? Why would they not accept? Because they understands understand who this person is. I think that's what's going to happen in the future after the rapture has occurred. I think people are going to wake up and they're going to know exactly who the Antichrist is using the Bible numerology. Uh, I have an idea who this one is going to be. And some of them are going to just simply refuse. They're going to suffer martyrdom, death, uh, as a result of not receiving the mark of the beast. That's what I believe is going to happen in the future. And if you would like to listen to a whole episode just on the topic of the Mark of the Beast, you can go to the That's Truth podcast. You can just Google that, That's Truth podcast. Find your favorite provider and look for episode number 98. And it's entitled Bible Prophecy Part 10, The Mark of the Beast. And you can listen to it and share it with your friends and family. Pastor, we have Codrington on the air. Codrington, very quickly, please go ahead with your question. Um, good night. Good night, uh, sir. I just want to ask this question about the different types of mother, what they represent. So like, um, Eve represents the mother of all, like, um, our simple mother, our simple baby, and the grandmothers in them after she, like, what they represent and so. And the mother of Jesus Christ, like what she represents, and so, so we can answer, ask, um, answer my question. I love to appreciate it. 
Well, Quartetron, I'm limited to what the Bible teaches on this subject. Uh, and there's nothing specifically in the Bible that um, tells you about the symbolism of either Eve or Mary. We know that Eve was the mother of all living. She was the first uh, woman, and she became the the progenitor of all people afterwards. We do know that. So we know she's the first woman. Uh, in terms of Mary, um, she is just a dedicated vessel uh, who obeyed the will of God to bear the Son of God and <clears throat> and to uh, let him become incarnated. And uh, so she became the mother of the man Jesus. Okay? Um, that is basically But the, the whole thing about Mary is her dedication and the fact that she acknowledged she was a sinner. She said, uh, I rejoice in God my Savior. Only a sinner needs a Savior. So even Mary acknowledged the fact that she needed a Savior. Uh, so I would just say to you that she is a type of a person who is allowing her body to be used for the glory of God, who has dedicated herself, and who listens to what God has said and allows herself to be a vessel that is used for His glory. Like you should be, okay? You should use your body. Uh, as the Bible says, the body is not for fornication. As we quoted a verse again, it's not for alcohol. It's not for carousing. The body is for the Lord. And that's why Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice unto God. What God wants is our body. When he has a body, he has all of us. He has our mind. He has a will. He has our emotions. He has every part of us. So every believer should be like Mary, presenting her body to be used of the Lord. Now, of course, the Lord used her body to produce the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Lord would use our bodies for other purposes. Uh, and we need to just make sure that we don't allow our bodies and destroy our bodies. Remember, the Bible says our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. If we destroy God's temple, it says, God will destroy uh, our bodies. So we need to make sure that we, we, we keep our bodies and we use our bodies for the Lord. Find out what God wants you to do and present yourself so that God can use your body in His service. Thank you very much for the call, Codrington. Thank you for your question and continue to listen to CRL and encourage others to listen. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.33, and we are discussing a question that came in from a listener last week on the Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 16. Thank you to the individual who sent in the question. In fact, thank you to all questions that have come in this evening. We appreciate your interaction, and if you have a question, you can WhatsApp or text it to 268 782 1454. Or you can call and ask it live on the air. The phone line is open and available. 268 462 7420. Want to continue? Yeah. Back with Song of Solomon. Let's go to verse 13 to 15 now and read that. Thy plants are an orchard. Again, this is Song of Solomon 4. Verse 13 yeah, through 15, 13 to 15. If you're wanting to follow along in your own Bible, thy plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, campfire with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the chief spices, a fountain of the garden, a well of living waters, and a stream from Lebanon. Yeah, you notice that uh, he he notes. First of all, he began by saying she is a garden that is it's protected and enclosed, 
and uh, untouched, quite frankly. Now, <clears throat> he's using the same image of the garden, uh, now that they're going to consummate this relationship. And he's, he's really describing poetically the beauty and the sweetness of this sensual appeal that she has, and now he's going to enjoy the pleasure. Um, so he talks about the pleasure of an orchard of pomegranates. In other words, she is tasty basically uh she's sweet she's pleasant he talked about the fragrance of exotic spices she smells is enthralling and captivating her smell and then he talked about the fountain of the water and the wells of living water she is like a mountain stream of cold sparkling living water that he's going to slake his thirst with and enjoy quite frankly so he's just saying she's delightful she's enchanting she's amorous she's erotic she's satisfying she's sexy crazy what he's saying in verse number three to fifteen he's using all kinds of poetic language uh, to speak of her smell, her pleasure, and her um, he, how she slakes his thirst, basically. Um, so he's talking in this in verses three, thirteen to fifteen. He's just uh, describing her poetically uh, in terms of her beauty and her sensual appeal to him, and the, the pleasure he gets from just uh, being with her. A WhatsApp question that has come in, Pastor. Since Jesus obeyed the law 100%, which made him the only possible sacrificial lamb of God, then why don't true born-again believers, because of gratitude and not for means of salvation, want to live as pure as possible, to sin as little as possible, and to strive for perfection living by the law? I'm not going under the law for justification or salvation, but truly because they love the Savior and want to live as pure as possible. Well, look, that should be the norm. Uh, nine of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament are mentioned in the New Testament as a, a, a lifestyle for the believer. So there's nothing wrong in the commandments, but God has selected nine out of the ten uh, to mention as part of the normal Christian life. So clearly, uh, a believer should want to live uh, by the, uh, according to the moral law of God, no question about that. And we should want to pursue perfection. Remember that the moral law is a reflection of God's character. And we should want to be like God. Jesus Christ is a reflection of God's character uh, as well. So that should be the norm. I have no explanation why believers, pe- people who profess to be believers, do not want to obey the moral law and live by the moral law. I have no reason to understand. A person should not want to steal, should not want to use the Lord's name in vain, should want to worship the Lord, uh, should want to honor marriage, should not covet, should not be a false witness, uh, should not want to harm anybody. I mean, those are things that are repeated in, in the New Testament. So I myself am baffled why Christians do not want to live a high standard of morality. Uh, that should be the outstanding feature of believers. Uh, somehow, for some reason, we have taken grace and we have abused grace and we have made grace into license. And that is probably the problem that we have today. And I also believe that not discipling and mentoring young converts as we should have. Uh, as a result, we pretty much leave them on their own. They're never really mentored properly and discipled properly. They fall back and get involved in all kinds of different a- activities. But, but I, I agree with you. Uh, I think that Christians should want to live the, a sterling moral life, not as a means of salvation, but a means of exhibiting the character of God. Uh, that should be the norm. That should be the ideal. So I, I myself am puzzled that people uh, who claim to be Christians can live so loosely I would be honest with you, I think a lot of these people are not Christians. 
I, I, honest to God, I believe that with all my heart. I think a lot of these people who profess to be believers I just don't know what salvation is about. Never really experienced any kind of real conversion. And I think that is reflected in the lifestyle. Every man that have this hope does what? Purify himself. The hope of Jesus returning and the hope of being with Christ should cause a believer want to purify himself, clean up his life and live a godly life. If you don't have that desire, it would seem to me you don't have that hope. Because the hope that moves and motivates you to want to live a clean and decent and a godly life. So we've got a lot of bogus people who are out there saying that they're saved who simply are not saved. They ain't got a clue of what salvation is about. They go to church, they join a church, and uh, they've been in church for a long time, they give, they tithe, whatever it is, but there's no real change, no real transformation, no real desire there whatsoever. They're going through the motions, hoping that at the end, maybe God will put the good against the bad and, and get them into heaven, and they're going to miss the boat, and miss the boat badly. Another question that has come in. Good night, gentlemen. The Bible has a commandment saying, Thou shalt not worship Thou shalt not worship no other God but God. In the Bible, it says also that God is a jealous God. We must praise Him and serve Him. So why are some people praying, or should I say chanting to the Virgin Mary? Why are Christians and non-Christians praying to a white man with straight hair and with blue eyes that they called Jesus and not just God Himself, why are people praying and asking man that comes from a woman like us for forgiveness, etc.? Well, I'm not too sure who worships a white man. I don't worship a white man, yeah. and uh, I don't I don't worship anybody with blue eyes either. I must, <laughs> so I don't know where you get that from. This sounds like a person, quite frankly, who was a Christian at one time, who has a beef in for, for, for Christians. That sounds like it's coming from a person of that. To my mind, that's what's happening here. Let me just say this, right? Um, uh, Jesus Christ is God's Son, and He is the Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. And he, he is not a man like us. He's a perfect man, perfect God at the same time. He's a God-man. He's a perfect mediator between God and man. Uh, part of the way that we have been, we can be redeemed, and, and uh, the way that re redemption happens. Man's problem is sin. The only religion that has an answer to sin is Christianity. I repeat, the only religion that has an answer to the problem of sin is Christianity. And it, it tells you how sin entered the world, and it tells you how God dealt with it and how God cured it. That's the God that we worship. So I don't know of any white man or any blue-eyed man that I worship. I certainly don't do that. And I'm sorry for anybody who does, to be very honest with you. We worship God through Jesus Christ, God's Son. That's the God that we worship. I don't want to read too much into yeah. this, but if I take a lot of those adjectives out and just read grammatically the sentence, why are Christians praying to a man they call Jesus and not just God himself? Well, What's Jesus is God. I mean, the problem with the person there, he, he's, he's either a, a, a Unitarian or he is a, um, a JW. But he's an, an Ararian. He does not believe that Jesus Christ is God, okay? The Bible teaches that God exists in a trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's the biblical teaching. So we worship the God of the Bible who's a triune God. And Jesus Christ is God the Son, 
Okay, he is eternal, like God the Father is eternal. Uh, he's from all eternity. He has all the attributes that uh, God the Father has. So we don't worship a man. We worship the divine person of Jesus Christ who became a man and is the God-man so that he can redeem us. Man's sin and he had to solve the problem of man's sin. So he had to become a man. He had to pay the penalty for man's sin, and he paid that penalty for man. But if he was not God, his death could not be for the entire world. And this is what gives not only the efficacy, but gives it the, the extent why his redemption is available for all. That's the biblical doctrine. Or oh, this guy could be a Muslim. Uh, right, because the Muslims don't believe that Jesus Christ is God, don't believe that God has a son, so he's probably a Muslim as well, or moving towards the Muslim faith. And why do we pray and ask Jesus for forgiveness? We pray and ask uh, God through Jesus Christ for forgiveness. We always pray in Jesus' name. Just like you're going to the bank. If you go to the bank and uh, I, you go with a blank check, they'll never cash it. You need the authenticating signature of Jesus on it. And that once that is done, then that signature alone gives God the right and the okay to go ahead and uh, answer your prayer. So we pray in Jesus' name as we were instructed to our Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, "If you ask anything in His name, it will be granted." And uh, we pray to the Father in His name, and that's exactly what the Christian does. We are following the biblical pattern. You probably don't believe the Bible. Uh, the person probably don't believe the Bible. Probably has another Bible. But you can't have the same Bible that we Christians have and hold to the position that you hold to. So I suspect that you're probably not a believer. You're not a Christian. Um, that was my view from what you're saying there. You can't be attacking Christ like this and be a Christian. Uh, if you were a Christian, you're a apostate Christian, but you can't be attacking Christ the way you're attacking him and and uh, feel that somehow you're a part of God's family. Thank you for sending in your question. We appreciate you listening to the Radio Lighthouse. If we happen to draw any false conclusions from your question, uh, we are thankful that you uh, felt comfortable sending in your question. If you have a question, you can WhatsApp or text it to 268 782-1454 or you can call and ask it live on the air 268-462-7420 back to Song of Solomon yeah one other question that was made he did make one valid point I agree yeah. with and that was that uh, why do people pray to Mary yeah. we don't pray to Mary uh, so if you think that uh, the only People I know pray to Mary Catholics. I don't have anybody else who pray to Mary other than Catholics, right? And I can say to anybody who's praying to Mary, that is pure idolatry. You must not pray to anyone but God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. Mary cannot help a single solitary person uh, in any way. Um, and and uh, so, and by the way, Mary is not was never assumed into heaven or you know Mary's assumption she was taken to heaven Mary was never taken to, to heaven directly and never did, did etc etc that, all that is Catholic dogma that has no biblical basis whatsoever it's like the same thing uh, Mary's immaculate conception uh, Mary is not conceived without sin. That's what the Catholic teaches. There's only one person conceived without sin, the Lord Jesus Christ. Mary is not a co-mediatrix with Jesus. There's only one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. Right. Uh, so I'm glad you mentioned that point because I want you to know that um, Protestants 
do not pray to Mary, and uh, we do not believe there's any relevance to praying to Mary. Mary was a vessel that God used to bring his son into the world, and Mary herself would say to anyone, if they could listen to her, whatever he saith to you, do it. And he said to us, pray to the Father in his name. That's what he said to us, and that's what we do. We obey. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from the island of Antigua. 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at org. You can also join us on Facebook Live. You can click on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and then right there, watch behind the scenes, listen to the program, and send in your questions. Uh, just a quick follow-up from the listener who sent in that question. No, I was never a Christian. When I went to church, when I was younger with my uncle and his wife, I saw a picture of a white man, blue eyes, with a hole in his hands. I asked my uncle's wife who he is, and I guess who she says, and she said, Jesus. So go figure. And I'm a woman from Antigua. And I was dedicated in a Wesleyan church. Thank you again for listening to the Radio Lighthouse and sending in your questions. Well, you're very unfortunate. Uh, you, I, I, I might, I mean, I don't know your whole story, uh, but it would be concern to me that you brought up in a Wesleyan church. And I wonder when that was, when, when your mom or whoever told you that and you had concerns, uh, I wonder if you sat down and discussed with her to find out exactly uh, why this was why this is so. The problem that um, I find in the uh, Caribbean uh, is happening again and again, not so much in Africa, but in the Caribbean. The colonial past has created a great distaste for anything white in the Caribbean. And uh, because Christianity uh, was actually developed in the wound of, of Europe, if you read the book of Acts, when Paul was going to go east, the Holy Spirit led Paul towards the west, and that's why he went into Europe and, and started there. Because it was actually developed in, in Europe to a great extent and became the uh, the leading religion in Europe. Uh, like any other culture, um, they use pictures of Europeans, uh, European to represent Christ. Uh, quite frankly, I think it was a mistake. I think probably they should have probably even drawn a figure with a no kind of no kind of color whatsoever, because I don't think they understood at the time the repercussions of that yeah. uh, as a result of the colonial past. Uh, Jesus Christ is not a white man; he's a Jew, and he's more like an Arab type of person. If you want to, if you're looking for coloration, uh, he's like a, a Middle Eastern type of person. He's not a European, uh, but again, because it was developed in the European culture. The pictures and the images that were used, unfortunately, uh, look European. But that's no reason to develop a hatred for Christ. Uh, read your Bible uh, and get back to uh, see what the Bible teaches on this matter. He was a Jew. We know that. So he looked like a Jew. And that's why they, they, they use, uh, when you're teaching Bible stories and so on, they use a figure. Uh, maybe they should have made somebody who looked more Arabic or uh, in that part of the world, and that would have been more acceptable. But I think your dislike for him is the like dislike for white people uh, because I think of the colonial thing that has happened in the past. That's my view. I might be wrong about it, and if I am wrong, I, you had to correct me there. But I think that has colored your view of Christianity because of the colonial past and the association of uh, a white Jesus as a result of the colonial past. And I think it's the bitterness that is there, the resentment that is there, 
that has moved you away from Christianity and will probably lead you into a, a cultic movement. But my answer to your question would be go back to the Bible, look for the Bible itself, and uh, let the Bible guide you in this respect. And uh, don't allow your prejudice or your hatred or your resentment uh, to cause you to miss the kingdom. That would be my counsel to you. Pastor, don't you think that that would be a reason why we're told not to make any image of of Jesus? Because in our, this side of eternity, we don't understand what Jesus or God looks like, and we create so many lasting consequences we can't even imagine. No, I think, I, honestly, I think that um, history, the church, has got a lot to uh, to be sorry for, the history of the church. But you remember that, I mean, the fact is he is a man. And when you're teaching stories about, about uh, et cetera, they use figures. I mean, we have what you call visual aids to help in the, in the, in the process. I think they should have used more of a, 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 a Middle Eastern type of a, a picture, etc. But again, it's like any culture that is something that's developing, they use what their cultural images are. Mm-hmm. And of course, because they spread Christianity, Europe spread it all over the world, they carry those images with it. But again, without understanding the repercussions of slavery and, and stuff like that, so that the bitterness that is as a result of that no affects how people accept the gospel. I understand those kind of problems. I understand why it happened. And that's why I think sometimes it's only in retrospect yeah. that 2020 vision is, you have 2020 vision. And, and the church has made a lot of mistakes. There's no question about that in the past. Uh, but that doesn't mean you throw the baby with the bath water. You don't throw away the gospel, you don't throw away the Bible because the church maybe has made some bad decisions in the past. Uh, and I think that is probably what is, uh, um, leads people to turn away from Christianity. But my answer to them is to go back to Jesus and see what the Bible teaches about him, understand why he had to come, why he had to be a man. Uh, because until you understand what's, why it needs to be salvation, uh, I don't think you will ever grasp what redemption is all about. A comment and a question uh, from a listener in Antigua. Additionally, clean and unclean animals were established by God long before Moses, not for the children of Israel specifically, but rather given to all people. In Genesis, it was clean and unclean animals sent on the ark in different amounts, obviously only two of the unclean animals because they weren't to be eaten. So wouldn't these laws be applicable today? No, because the reason for the unclean animals was for sacrifice has nothing to do with eating in the book, in the, in the book of, uh, prior to the laws that were given. Those unclean animals were to be used for, those clean animals were used for sacrifice, okay? So it has nothing to do with eating in that, in that particular case. Uh, as a matter of fact, prior to the flood, man was a vegetarian. He was only given, after the flood, he was told to eat every single creeping creature. Mm. It's mentioned in the book of Genesis chapter 9. So there was a change in the diet after the flood. And again, you, you remember that before the flood, there was a canopy of water that actually came down. That canopy was removed. Now the sunlight is, is, is coming through. So the whole dietary structure had to change. But because you had unclean animals and clean animals in the Old Testament before the Levitical law in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, it has nothing to do with eating. It has to do with the those clean animals were for for the sacrifice. We'll deal with that at, at the, in the next study. Uh, we'll show you exactly. And by the way, uh, when you come to the New Testament, we'll show you very clearly that the dietary laws have changed for the New Testament believer. You're no longer under the Old Covenant. We're under a new covenant. And I can show it in Paul, in Jesus, 
Paul's teaching, even Jesus himself, Peter's teaching, we see very clearly that those laws are not applicable today. Um, and I'll give you the very solid biblical reasons why they're not applicable. And by the way, uh, the, the, the clean and unclean has nothing to do with health in the Bible. The clean and unclean had to do with the matter of when he said that uh, they couldn't eat certain animals, etc. It had to do that you may be set apart from all the other nations. It was for spiritual purposes that you are distinct people. Even in your dress, you could be distinct. In your food, you're distinct so that you know who you belong to. But it had nothing to do with, with health issues. It had to do with spiritual moral issues. And I'll show you that as well because, for example, Nathan, I'll, I'll show you in the Old Testament that if an animal died, of itself the Jews couldn't eat it right but you know they could give it to their neighbor I did not know that no, I can show you that in the Bible mm. so it's not a moral issue if it was a moral issue <laughs> how, why would God uh, the moral being give that trying to make their neighbor sick <laughs> yeah I mean, but it's not a moral issue see it was a distinct dietary laws to make Israel stand out among the nations not only and by the way even in, in, in agriculture you couldn't plant two seeds you couldn't wear a garment with mixed uh, colors I mean, but why? Again, God wanted them to be so distinct from all these pagan nations. He wanted you belong to me, right? That's why it was done, right? But then you'll discover later, now, when we come to, I'll show you very clearly, that the principle of distinction is no longer what we eat or what we wear, but how we behave, how we live. I'll show you how Peter uses the same passage dealing with these things and point out it's a behavior you're concerned about right now. So the whole thing has changed and uh, we'll point that out later. Thank you to the individual who sent in that question about the uh, clean and unclean and what we should eat. I couldn't have created a better segue at the end of this episode going into the next week's episode. Pastor and I were discussing it even before the program of if we finish the Song of Solomon, he gave me some uh, ideas of the direction for the dietary discussion and what's clean and unclean. And so we look forward to you listening next week as Pastor goes through that using the Bible to answer your questions. Any comments in the last Let's few minutes? Let's look at verse 16 quickly. I want to yeah. finish this up. Verse 16. Uh, finally, to the verse that the question was about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Song of Solomon, chapter 4, and verse 16 says, Awake, O north wind, and come, thou south, blow upon my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. Notice two things. First of all, she said, I want the breeze to blow into my garden. Then she turned around and said, It's his garden. Just like a, a garden, Dayton, the, the, the fragrance of the wind coming through and you, you're at a distance and you're, just, you're, drawn, you're drawn to the garden with the fragrant smell that comes. She is saying the same thing. I want my beloved to be drawn to me. So she's using the same image of the garden he used of her. And now he's saying, okay, breeze, blow upon me. Let, my, let me attract my husband with his sweet smelling flavor. And then he says, read it again. Awake, O north wind, and come thou south. Blow upon my garden. Right, and then read the next thing. That the spices thereof may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. No, it's no longer my garden. It's now his garden. And now he says, using the image again, let him come and eat his pleasant fruit. In other words, this is the final act of consummation, conjugal love, 
and uh, she's just making it. She's now speaking to him. He's been speaking all the time. Now she's saying, come, I'm ready, basically. So that's the final thing. And now he's enjoying the pleasure of intimacy between he and his wife. That's how it ends. Enjoy your garden, basically. So in 2022, what should we take from the Song of Solomon and apply to our lives? Well, to my mind, uh, it's the beauty and the celebration of marital conjugal love. I mean, we need to understand that this is what romance is all about, and also the need for us as husbands Mm -hmm. to communicate make our wives feel, they have the insecurity. As you get older, you don't look as attractive, you've got on some weight. We gotta be very careful what we say. But her insecurities, we can resolve that by using the language to make her feel secure about herself in the fact that we still find her attractive. Be sure that you join us next week as we will be discussing the dietary laws from the Old Testament, why they were given, and what they meant, and what they mean for us today in 2022, and should we be following them. Encourage others to tune in next week to That's Truth. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth. Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kHz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.